Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a conversation with pastors Douglas Wilson and Joe Rigney about the life and works of Jonathan Edwards. If, by the end of it, you're intrigued about Jonathan Edwards, know that now available at canonpress.com is Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, with a fantastic intro from Joe Rigney. From the introduction, the way to grow in assurance is to kill sin, seek God's grace, and exercise it as much as you can. Assurance comes not by looking inward, but by action, by looking to Christ and living out what you see. Get Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, available now at canonpress.com. Well, welcome to this special um, edition of Canon Wired. Uh, Joe Rigney uh, from Minneapolis, uh, from Bethlehem uh, Baptist. Uh, Bethlehem, what's the name of the Bethlehem uh, College and Col- Seminary. Bethlehem College and Seminary is... Um, here uh, with us, and and we've got a common interest in Jonathan Edwards, so we have a number of segments that we'd like to uh, go over with you to talk about various aspects of Edwards' life and theology. Um, So Jonathan Edwards is often considered America's greatest theologian. He's a Reformed theologian, and uh, you weren't always Reformed, and so I'm wondering, did did Edwards have any role to play in your coming to Reformed theology? Yes, he, he most certainly did. In the some probably in the early 80s. I became Calvinistic in 88. And probably in the early 80s, I had read, uh, I was a conservative evangelical, grew up in that setting. And I read Finney's uh, Lectures on Revival, which uh, appalled me. I just, (laughs) 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 you know, is this what we're doing? (laughs) Uh, And I'd grown up in a church where, you know, invitation at the end of every service. So it was part of that tradition. And I, th- I thought, well, if this is revival, I don't want any, and uh, sort of shelved that whole thing, walked okay. away. Um, then it, somewhere in the mid-'80s, I became post-millennial, which is a long story um, and kind of weird, but I was a conservative, Arminian, Baptistic, evangelical who was post-mill. Huh. And that a was, mutt. Uh, uh, absolute mutt. And, and people were saying there's no such thing as post-millennialist anymore. Well, there especially wasn't much of that kind. Yeah. And so I, um, I thought, well, now I believe that the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then I thought, well, looking around, not at this rate it won't. <laughs> so, there was a cognitive dissonance between my post-millennialism and my view of what was happening to our culture. And so I thought, well, if, if this gets turned around and we start to have what I believe, now my eschatology now requires me to believe, uh, theologians and historians and uh, bio- biographers would call whatever that was a great revival, huh. you know, uh, okay. because there, there's no way to get from here to there without something big happening. Right. So I, I realized I was going to have to reopen my study of re- revival. And, what, um, and I recognized as a result of that study that it would have to be something like what Edwards had to do with. In other mm-hmm. words, not a Finney-like revival, mm-hmm. but um, so the kind of effect that my post-millennialism required, I concluded was a fruit that grew on one kind of tree, mm-hmm. and that was the tree of Reformed theology, Reformed preaching, the kind that Edwards, I would say Edwards is the quintessential representation of. 
And so uh, that that is uh, so I, I I had begun to read Edwards, and I was entered somewhere around there. I read Ian Murray's uh, biography of okay. Edwards and some of Edwards' stuff, the religious affections and okay. stuff. I thought, okay, here's a sane, balanced <laughs> yeah. guy. He's a he's an advocate of the revival, um, but he's not. But he's clothed and in his right mind, and, right. and he yeah. recognizes that they're not burning his pants in the you know the town <laughs> right. square or anything right. like that, right? Right. Um, and and so and he recognizes the excesses of the revival. Yep. Um, and this is this is a good stable person. I want to be associated with that guy, and so that was my first introduction to Edwards directly. So 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 then um, let's talk maybe a bit about the revival. He. You have these sort of uh, events, one starting in, in Northampton, his, his town, and he writes uh, an account of it, and eventually it's published and it's sort of circulated all over the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then it starts to spark other things, and then, and then George Whitfield lands and moves his way up and down the, uh, the mm-hmm. Atlantic coast, and everybody has to go see, hear Whitfield. And you're having all of these sorts of things, and, and with that, um, you have all sorts of people who... Um, uh, begin to have very intense emotional experiences, falling over mm-hmm. the sort of thing that we associate nowadays right. with uh, charismatic movement or Pentecostal movement. Right. And uh, and you got Edwards sort of in the middle of this, and he writes a number of different works on the revivals. Right. Um, he writes, you know, uh, distinguishing marks of the of work of the Spirit of God. He writes some thoughts concerning the revival, which is essentially a response mm-hmm. to some critics, and then a few years later writes religious affections. And as as he writes them, though, you kind of see a maturing mm-hmm. of his thought. Um, away from sort of just you know yay God right. yay right. revival to some discernment. What um, do you think? Contrast or, or help think about that a little bit. Is is that um, uh, the way to think about revivals? Is that we need to kind of give some distance before we evaluate them? Yes, or, I, yeah, I, um, and recognize that all of us live our lives in in sequence. We don't learn everything all at once. It, it reminds Edward's progress through the. Uh, revivals reminds me of Martin Luther and you know Martin Luther didn't have a fully formed Reformation theology when he when he posted his theses Um, what happened is he did that there was a response there was a pushback from that and Martin Luther sort of grew up right Uh it's like a a bachelor getting married you're not um, ready to get married that's why you need to get married right (laughs) yeah Yeah. right you're not ready to lead a revival that's why you need to have one, right? So you okay. can. Uh, so the revival bursts out. Uh, the the uh, and his initial book that won him fame was all you know cheerleading. This is yeah. great, but then he, he's he's not a partisan, okay. you know. Um, so he's not treating the revival as though it were a political party or an agenda or a movement of his right. own. Yep. So that when excesses develop, he's able to identify them for what they are while remaining a friend of the revival. So if you took a later critic, someone like Charles Hodge or something, right. who's also sane and balanced and, and yep. who's, who's able to say, this revival's good, yep. that one's not so good. Yep. As someone like Hodge, who's you know, a critic of the revival, but balanced. Yep. And Edwards, who is a friend of the revivals, but balanced uh-huh. a generation earlier. Uh, I think they'd get along great. Huh. You know, okay. I, I think they would yeah. say, yeah, I don't think they would uh, cross-check. I don't think Hodge yeah. would call an excess what Edwards would call good. I think they'd call ex- they'd right. call the same thing excesses and they'd call the same thing sober and and Christ-centered and godly. Okay, very good.
So one of the books Edward is probably most famous for, it, it was the book that uh, John Wesley published, an abridged version, uh, and he said it, um, it you know, contains much good and much poison, which is why he abridged it, is Religious Affections. Right. And in that book, Edwards is establishing um, the, how do you tell, how can you tell if someone is born again or not? And um, he gives you sort of 12, and the reason this is a problem, of course, is because he's lived through revivals. He's seen people come down and, and recount the big experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then a year later, they're back in the tavern. They're back on the, the street. They're back, you know, right. doing whatever they were before. And so now he's going, so flashy minute. stuff isn't, isn't the way to go. And so he's got 12 unreliable signs. These just don't tell you anything. It could be good, could mm -hmm. be bad. We don't know. And then he's got 12 reliable signs, mm -hmm. uh, how we know whether we're born again. And so I, I'm wondering, as you read through those reliable signs, um, did you say yes and amen all, all across the board? Did you say uh, yes to half, no to half? Did you say um, yes with some caveats? How did, how did you react to, um, are these criteria the right ones that we should be using? Um, let me, uh, uh, I, I don't have any difference that I know of with with him in these things, um, these sorts of signs or indicators. I, I, all my experience is, yeah, that's right, that's, yeah, mm -hmm. that's good, that's good, that's good. Um, there, and this, I don't know quite where to categorize this difference, and it might be a cultural difference, 18th century, 21st century. Okay. Uh, I, I'm sure there's a little bit of that, uh, and maybe more, way more than a little bit. Um, maybe personality, cultural differences, stylistic difference. It's more, uh, it's more a question of style. Okay. So, so, so princi principially, when he says, you know, they need to have, uh, you know, the divine and supernatural light, when there needs to be sort of this even true humility, not this mm -hmm. sort of false Correct. Yeah. fostering humility. Uh, what am I going to say? No, no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. no, you don't need true humility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Of course, you need yeah. true humility so and meekness the, and those sorts of things. You're all, yeah, you're good with that. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, but there's a, um, but there's a, a seriousness. That, okay. Now, now, I don't think that. Um, it's not like that Jonathan Edwards was a wet blanket at parties because the indication was yeah. that he was sociable and amiable in his right. discourse and so forth. Um, his kids seemed to love him and yeah, it, it was not affectionate uh, relationships. It was not like there was this theological thinking machine that you invited to the party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, it, that's the caricature. But so it seems like he, in his personal dealings with people, had everything under control. I wouldn't have any stylistic yeah. objections there. But when he's commending people to, you know, examine their consciences, uh -huh. and here's here are some signs. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's probably the best thing to do is to say the stylistic difference that I'm talking about uh, results in what I would call a, a sin is not the right word, but a sin of omission. Okay. Right. What does he What does he not caution them? Okay. Uh, uh, against, um, or what does he not caution them against effectively? And the one of the things that has come out, one of the negative things that came out of the uh, the the Puritan checklists uh -huh. was morbid introspection. Okay. And that's not because Edwards or others uh, were commended it. They didn't say yay more morbid introspection right. because there there will be th they will say some cautions against. Yeah, right. I think uh, Edwards has actually one of my favorite quotes of his says something like, um, you know, introspection is is to be much self examination is to be much desired, but the the main thing is um, uh, assurance comes not so much by self examination but by action. Right. It's by what you do by the grace of God in your life pouring out. That's right. how you tell not. 
Yeah, if you go up to your, yeah, if you go up to your bedroom and navel gaze to see how much you love Jesus, the deeper you look, the less you will yeah, love right. Jesus. Right. So there's a. Um, so I don't know that, uh, um, and I don't want to wrong them here because when I I love the Puritans and I think for for good guided soul work, you know, if yeah. there's no they there's nobody that uh, comes into their league. And Edwards included. He's uh-huh. balanced and judicious and everything else. But there, nevertheless, he's surrounded by revivals uh-huh. in which there's some. Um, I would have liked to have seen a more th- full, full-throated, strident attack on morbid introspection. Morbid introspection. Okay. Um, so, in, and I. So again, I mentioned earlier that I grew up in evangelical circles and been around been around the block a number of times, and. And I know in, in evangelical churches, and I'm talking about I'm not talking about the kind where the youth group is composed of anarchists, right? Yeah. <laughs> but evangelical churches where things are stable, it's a good, it's a decent, it's a solid good, church, yeah. and these are good kids. If if I were a guest speaker at a youth group, mm-hmm. um, there are two ways that I know of to get the room to go deathly quiet, right? One is to talk about guys and girls, mm-hmm. um, and the other is to talk about assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. If I go into a group of evangelical kids, 17 to 21, and I talk about how to know if you're a real Christian, that I've got their undivided, riveted attention mm-hmm. focused on this. Because they, uh, because we've got, we've, um, I'm not blaming all this on Edwards, but I would have liked to have seen someone of his stature close some doors or mm-hmm. head some of this stuff off. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is you have, uh, to this day, you've got a group full of, um, you've got a, a church, kids being brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're in Christian schools or homeschooled, and, they're, and they're, their parents are doing just what Jesus asked them to do. And then they bring for the Sunday evening service a guy who used to be a uh, leader of a Hell's Angel mm-hmm. band and used to sell cocaine, and he shot a guy in a bad drug deal, and he was on death row. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then the governor pardoned him and, yeah, and led him to the Lord. And yeah. the governor led this guy. And, yeah. and now he got released, and he's traveling around the country telling his testimony. So it's 20 years of somebody taking an egg whisk into his brain. You know, yeah. <laughs> He's as scrambled as it gets, and he's got a messed up life. And he tells his story, and praise God for the story. Praise God yeah. for the this guy being redeemed. But he's, he's gloriously saved out of the hell's angel death row. And all the Christian kids go, oh, yeah. I must not be a Christian. Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. You don't have to. This guy from the Hell's Angels, he knows right when the sun rose in his uh-huh. life. Yeah. And you're a bunch of kids here. You don't know when the sun rose in your uh-huh. life. But you don't know. You don't have to know when the sun rose to know that it's up. Right. Right. Now, if if you want to to go somewhere to have great indications of what it's like to have the sun be up, uh-huh. Edwards is your man. Yeah. He, he describes the sunlight in a wonderful. Yeah, wonderful way. But there's a natural gravitational pull among evangelicals to doubt their own salvation. Do I really love Jesus? Do I really love Him enough? Do uh, I, you know? Unless they can identify that the the moment when the sun right burst out, and then that's it. That was it. And and so I've got we've got an almost superstitious attachment to the moment I became a Christian, uh-huh. and I've got to have some tag on it. I've got to have some right way of identifying that, yeah, that would really... Well, but then the irony is, if you lean on that too heavily, you're trusting in that event uh-huh. and not in Jesus. Yeah. 
So how do you know you're a Christian? Well, I threw a pine cone in the fire at, at, at yes, Young Life Camp. camp. Yeah. Or I, I and, and lots it, of people did become Christians then, yeah. but not because of the pine cone. Right, yeah, and as time goes by and it gets more distant, you begin to wonder, did, I, did it really happen? Yeah. Or sin, you know, sin comes up. You, And Luther would say, look at the sun. Jesus, you know, look, yeah. at, look yeah. at the sun's up. The sun's up, so redirect. So, um, so with that, then, so the, this kind of, um, this form of uh, piety, um, you, you often, I think, decry pietism. Right. Why don't you like God, godliness? <laughs> you know, what's, what's wrong with wanting to be godly? Right. Um, pietism is, as I, I just <clears throat> joked in a class I was teaching, uh, beware of all isms except for prisms, <laughs> as the fellow said. The problem is not the piety. The problem is the ism part. And what pietism does is it violates the passage in Ecclesiastes that says, do not be righteous over much. Why should you destroy yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay, there is a way of overdoing it. There's a way of being hyper-scrupulous. There's a way of fussing over the details that God doesn't like. Uh-huh. All right? um, and, it, and so the, my objection to pietism is not because I object to piety or godliness. My objection to pietism is that I believe that pietism leads directly to impiety okay. because it's a form of impiety. What you're doing is you're binding people's consciences. You're t- tying heavy loads on them that, that God didn't, uh, you know. Um, you're saying, well, if you really love Jesus, you won't drink beer. Uh-huh. Uh, and one, I mentioned in one of our earlier segments, uh, I was appalled by Finney. Finney said that if you really love Jesus, you wouldn't drink tea. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so uh, you'd, you'd give the money to missions instead. Yeah. And so you have Christians guilting other Christians in a, okay. you, um, over things that Jesus never said, that God never said. And, and the, so they tie these burdens on. And it's all done in the name of piety. Right. Well, you can't do that. You can't do this. And it's a deep human impulse to want to have some sort of measurable standard that they can meet. So they can feel superior to other people. So that's a it's a danger. So in, as there's a danger of sort of a legalistic piety where you're having Finney tell you all these sorts of things, but there's also just sort of a um, maybe maybe the way I put it this way. Uh, Edwards is a very driven fellow. Yes, he's a very he's, he seems from all his writings to be very intense, very singularly minded. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could sum up part of your ministry, I think it would be something like lighten up, champ. Right. <laughs> um, right. And so, but and yet you like Edwards. Right. As driven as he is. Right. So, um, what, do you, what do you, how do you, what's the, what's the difference between that kind of drivenness, or is there a difference between that kind of drivenness? Actually, I, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with Edwards so much at, on this because I believe that Edwards was driven, and I also believe that he had fun. He, he was, he was driven, and he, but he liked what he was doing. Yeah. Okay. Right. right? Um, I don't want to. I don't want to live a life that just sort of slouches around the place. And uh, okay. I I believe that we ought to get up early and hit it and and work hard and be focused and disciplined. And I think we have a responsibility to get a lot done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should go to bed tired. I think mm-hmm. we should go to bed exhausted. Um, and we should sleep well. We should uh-huh. be driven there too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so okay. So is, it, is that the thing? Is that it? You know, Edwards is driven, and yet one of his favorite things is to sort of walk in the woods right. in the evenings and, and think great thoughts. And yeah, he, he loves it. Uh-huh. Right. He loves it. And that's the thing. Um, when when I think of driven in the negative sense, I'm thinking of a workaholic 
who who's a he's a dog pushing a rock, and he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. He's just he's the gerbil on the on the treadmill and just doing this uh, doing the thing, and so uh, what what I want is hardworking Puritan work ethic, Protestant work ethic driven people who are having the time of their lives and then sleep like a baby and then sleep like a baby okay. because tomorrow I get to do it again. Okay, right, <laughs> I get to do it. And so you think of Edwards out there saying, and tomorrow uh -huh. I get to write more theology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and take more walks in the woods. So, okay, well, that, that maybe leads um, uh, to this next one, which is he, as a young man, he's probably 21 or so, he writes this series of resolutions. Yeah. And uh, some of these are really interesting. And so kind of what I want to do is maybe read a couple of them and just kind of get your, your take. quick quick take. You know, good, mm -hmm. bad, you know, comment if you want. Right. Um, so here's one. Resolved never to lose one moment of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say everything hinges on what you mean by lose, right? Okay. Um, if, he, if he would say, walking in the woods, thinking about Christ and admiring his, is that losing time? Uh -huh. well, well, of course not. Uh -huh. It's, it's let, let all things be done for edification. Uh -huh. um, but he also doesn't have a problem with um, putting your feet up or yeah, you know, recharging, the, recharging the batteries and that sort of thing. But that's not losing time. time. So it goes back to, is it, is, is it a maniacal drivenness? Uh -huh. um, or is it simply pay attention, redeem the time? Yeah. Right. So, so as long as it's expansive enough to take in more than we tend to. So if, if John, when Jonathan Edwards went to the post office, would he have checked his email on his iPhone while standing in line? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, would he, or would he have just stood there in line staring out the window thinking about nothing? Uh -huh. Well, I think he would have been the kind of guy who checked, his, checked his email, uh, redeeming the time. That's right. Because he was resolved to never lose a moment of time. That's, that's fine. Okay. But as long as you're having fun. Okay. Uh, how about this one? Um, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. <laughs> so, and, and maybe even expanding on that, there's a number of, of ones where he says, resolve to think often of my own death. Right. Um, if by that he means never do anything that I wouldn't do in the last hour of my life, that, that sounds like a, like a moral, ethical thing. Never, if, don't do anything you'd be ashamed to stand before uh, Jesus to, in the, the next five minutes. Stand before Jesus, and I think that's absolutely a, a okay. good, absolutely good thing. But if if he said, um, uh, I guess I wouldn't go down to the grocery store for the gallon of milk. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, that uh, that is just simply how you're ordering your time. But I, I really love what Martin Luther said, um, a similar thing where he said, "What would you do if you knew absolutely that Jesus was coming tomorrow?" And he said, "I'd plant a tree." <laughs> And, and that's sort of a hide, you know, yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, so how about this one? Um, result, when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it, if circumstances mm -hmm. don't hinder. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great idea. Uh, um, I have had ideas occur to me. Uh, I really need to, um, got a sermon coming up. I need to make this point. Uh -huh. And then I fail to write it down. Uh-huh. And then I know I remember I know that that was, was a really hot thing that yeah. I think why, why didn't I write it down? Well, acting on it right away is a good you know even if it's to you know Edwards used to write around you know little notes all over himself. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. You yeah, know. and then be able to take them off in the proper order to follow the train of thought. Yeah. Right. Um, so that if it's only jot a note to remind yeah. yourself, okay, I need to I need to do something to make sure that this. 
follows through. You made the point about action. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure if you think of something, yeah. you want to put it in motion yeah. so that it gets to yeah. the realm of action. Okay. Uh, this is one of my favorite. Never to suffer the least mo motions of anger towards irrational beings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yes, like um, electronic devices, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Or, um, yeah, so Edwards is saying road rage is out. Um, <laughs> don't get mad know, at your horse. Don't get mad at your horse. Don't. But the fact that he had to ride it even sort of tells you something. You know, he's, he's you know, whipping his horse, and then all of a sudden he goes, I need a new resolution. Uh, Ed, someone as uh, a world, Edwards was a world-class genius. And one of the besetting sins of geniuses is that they don't suffer fools gladly. And they, they're oftentimes impatient. They see right where, you mm -hmm. know, they see what the solution is and other people are not availing themselves of it. And, or if they're, they've got something important to do and something breaks. Um, he, someone like him would have been tempted, I think, in those areas. He was ambitious in a right kind of way, mm -hmm. driven, I think, in a right kind of way. And, and when God just put a little obstacle in his way, I think it's significant that he had to say, okay, don't get mad at the dog. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, maybe maybe two more. Resolved never to speak anything that is ridiculous, sportive, or a matter of laughter on the Lord's Day. <laughs> um, I'm afraid I differ with that. <laughs> okay, so that was a problem. That, that's a problem because that would that would eliminate um, a, a number of texts to preach on, right? Okay. Now I do think that there are forms of forms of humor that would be inappropriate, you know. Um, but I I have a problem with what that assumes about. The Lord's Day. So if you have a if you have a bunch of people uh, over after church and you're sitting around on the front porch after a shared hospitality meeting and you're telling stories and visiting and talking and mm -hmm. laughing, mm -hmm. I, I think that that's a way of keeping the Lord's Day. Okay. Last one then. Resolved after afflictions to inquire how I am the better for them and what and in what ways and what I might might have got by them. Yeah. I think what he's doing is saying run run regular inventory, mm -hmm. run regular quality controls on how you're doing, keep short accounts. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is all good. The problem with keeping short accounts is, again, style, how you do it. Um, there's a way of, there are certain people who, um, when they've gone through an affliction and they run an inventory to see if they're any better for it, I could say, they're doing it in a certain way that I could say, no, I'll have to answer your question. No, you're not better for it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, because the affliction was given to you to get to you out of yourself, yeah. you know, um, wake you up. Mm -hmm. There are other people in the world. Mm -hmm. And and then if you veer away from that and you say, now, into, into how did this benefit me? Uh -huh. uh, you're not doing it. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that's what Edwards is doing because I think given the tenor of his life and yeah. overall, I think he probably answered those questions in a sane and sober way. Uh -huh. But there are lots of people who don't, right? So when I've had to counsel morbid, uh, morbidly introspective people, they are the hardest people in the world to counsel, right? So if a young man comes in with a lust problem or a porn problem, um, I know what the problem is. He knows what the problem is. It's out on the table. We tackle the problem. If someone is morbidly introspective, they think the Holy Spirit is the devil and the devil is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the Bible... Um, and th that's a problem that goes deep. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, and the devil is the accuser in the Bible. And so they think the accuser is the Holy Spirit, and mm -hmm. they think the comforter is a false lying spirit. Mm -hmm. And so they, they you know, come in about, well, I, um, 
There's some people, you could preach a sermon on shoplifting, uh, thunder away at shoplifting. They've never stolen anything in their life, and they're the ones that come under conviction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and they'll come to you, and I, but I may have wanted one, a candy bar. I might have taken one, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'd say, well, the pro your problem is not that you are introspecting, trying to find sin. The problem is you're looking in the wrong place. Right. Um, let me take your head. You're looking for this imaginary theft that you committed or this imaginary yeah. you know, imaginary lies that you told. But that's not your problem. Your problem is that you're absorbed and self-absorbed and arrogant and conceited. You think about yourself all the time uh -huh. as evidenced by your introspection. So uh -huh. I take, take their head metaphorically yeah. and point it at the in introspection. So yeah. See, that's what you're doing. That's right this That's right this minute. And then you let go of their head and their back yeah. confessing the phony baloney sins. Well, I, I would like to have I would like the Puritans to have turned their their moral and ethical analytical powers uh -huh. on that. that. I think that that's uh, to, to sort of close that door to people who do that in their name. Mm -hmm. Now I don't think the, the great Puritans don't do that themselves, mm -hmm. but there are some in their legacy, some in their mm -hmm. among their heirs who do do that, and I'd like to have I would like to have more. Edwards quotes and mm -hmm. Jeremiah Burroughs quotes and so forth. I've got them, mm -hmm. but I would like to have more that I could say, no, that's not, that's not what God wants you to do. Um, so you and Edwards are both post-millennials. Yes. Um, and so uh, you believe that uh, things are getting better and better and better. Medications are working. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And, and um, so the obvious, the obvious question is going to be, isn't that a little kind of Pollyannish? It, it doesn't seem like things are getting better and better and better. And so um, what's up with that? How do you how yeah. do you deal with that? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Um, the, in the Korean War, there was a there was a Marine general when the Chinese came into the war. They flooded in. They surrounded this Marine general's unit and they were completely surrounded. The general looked around at all of them and he said, well, they can't get away now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So here, here's, the here's a weird dichotomy. Uh, Latimer and Ridley tied to stakes. You know, uh -huh. They're about to be burned to death yep. um, in England. Play the man, Master Ridley. I trust we shall light today such a candle as by God's grace shall never be, never be put out. Right. All right. And what he's doing, he's tied to a stake and he's saying, we've got them on the run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got them on the run, Ridley. Yeah, right. you know, play the man. We've, we've got them. Uh, God, God's going to uh, pursue this. Through. And then a modern Christian, modern evangelical Christian, right. watches the evening news on his plasma flat screen mm -hmm. in his Lazy Boy and looks at another depressing news story and he gets up from his Lazy Boy to walk into the kitchen, um, climate-controlled kitchen, to yeah. open the fridge and get a drink and say, yeah. honey, it's the last days. So, yeah, yeah. Um, they're coming for us next. Uh -huh. And I say, yeah. what's, what's different? Uh -huh. Here, these guys were beleaguered, surrounded, overwhelmed. They had troubles, as Edwards had troubles. I mean, where right. where was he? You know, yeah. he's on the edge of this continent with yeah. a continent full of trees, and yeah. um, and he has this robust faith in uh, a glorious future for the world. And we modern contemporary evangelicals who have never had it so good, mm -hmm. if if a psychological explanation for these things were mm -hmm. to be applied, you would think it would be the other way around. Mm. You would think that the martyrs were the ones saying everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and you would think that we would be the Pollyanna ones. Right. Right? But we're, but we're but not, we're not we're generally. Not. So I, I believe that 
the the future of the planet should be dictated to us by what the Bible reveals, not by my own personal circumstances. Okay. I could have a great if I'm in an, in an army at war, I could lose my life in an, an encounter where our army won a great victory, a great battle, and a great war. Uh -huh. But I might lose my life. Right. Um, or I might have a pretty uh, posh assignment yeah. in a losing war. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I can't, I can't evaluate how things are going by how things are going for me. Yeah. I have to evaluate it based on what God reveals in Scripture. Uh -huh. And I think Edward saw, as, as I've come to see, that the Bible promises that the earth is going to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. And I might see that in, in a country with a high standard of living and relative peace, uh -huh. or I might see it in a time of conflict and war. Uh -huh. and it's, it's faith that sees that. So, so with that, though, um, the, the sort of the philosophy of history that comes out of that, um, there's an Edwards scholar who, who argues that Edwards has these, he's, these, what he calls, I think, competing motifs, one of which is sort of this uh, cyclical motif, which is that, you know, everything goes up and then everything comes down and everything goes up and everything comes down and everything goes up. So there's a cycle of, you know, uh, sort of rise and, and fall. Mm -hmm. And then he also has this um, more progressive, you know, what you just described, sort of uh, the um, earth's going to be filled and it's, it's filling mm -hmm. up. Here we go. Yeah. Um, and so th those feel like they're competing. Either it's this sort of cycle, this back and forth between God and the devil, between the powers of light and the powers of darkness till the end, or right. we're, we're further up and further in, we're going up. So okay. how, how do you... The way I those reconcile together? those is say that eschatology, uh, post-millennial eschatology, I think rightly understood, is mountain biking up a mountain where there's a good many downs and okay. valleys. And, okay. you know, so it's... It, um, Postmillennialism does not require you to say, and the kingdom of God takes off like the space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And boom, and, and every day and every way, everything's getting better and better. Okay. It's not like that. The images that Jesus uses, the mustard seed becoming a great plant or the yeast put in the loaf, um, the kingdom of God does not arrive like the 82nd Airborne. Right. The kingdom of God arrives slowly, quietly. Who figured that out? Who saw that coming? And so my view of eschatology is three steps forward, two steps back, five steps forward, three steps back, okay. you know, or the mountain back going up the yeah. uh, the craggy mountainside. And that means that if you look at church history in 25-year chunks, uh -huh. you might be grotesquely, grotesquely misled about how this is, right. you know, you might look at a 25-year chunk where everything's falling apart, uh -huh. or 50-year chunks, everything's falling apart. But I would submit that if you look at church history in 500-year chunks, uh -huh. that's you divide it up into four pieces. Right. Would I rather be, is the kingdom of God more poised for advance now or in 1500? Hmm. Now. How about 1500 and 1000? Well, 1500. Mm -hmm. How about 1000 or 500? Hmm. Well, 1000. Right. Right. So if I, if I take the chunks, if I look at the bicyclist going up the mountain and I get a wide angle lens on it, right. I can tell he's going up. Uh -huh. Right. But if I, if I just focus in on the, on, on the last five minutes, it might, it might be all downhill. Down, it might all be all downhill. And that's how I think you can harmonize those two elements in Edwards, the cyclic thing. It's not a cycle on a flat road. Right. It's cyclic uh, up. Okay. And, um, and at the same, the other ten is, is there's this confidence that it's overall going to be up. Overall up. So that, that raises um, maybe two, two other issues about 
maybe objections or, or criticisms. The first would have to do with um, this idea of sort of slow mustard seed growth. Um, you know, post millennials, as far as at least as far as I can tell, aren't known for sort of missionary endeavors. Right. They're not. You know, it's the it's the premillennial dispensational guys who are out. Right. You know, in in Africa and South America, just lighting it up. Um, and so, you know, how how does that, how does that fit? Is it does does the sort of slow growth mean that there's not the same push? There's not yeah. the same push for the, the the frontier missionary unreached peoples of the world who have no yeah. witness within them. Um, yes, you you don't want the slow growth mustard seed thing to say translate into a slow coach approach to missions. Okay, right. You don't want that. But I would say, in our defense, on the reason there the reason there isn't a big post millennial explosion of missions is that there are hardly any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Three of you in Idaho. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. as recently as, you know, back when Lorraine Bettner was publishing his yeah. post-millennial stuff, people were saying he's the, he was the last living specimen. I mean, yeah. You know, he goes and that's it, uh -huh. right? Um, so there's, the last 20 years, 20 to 30 years, has seen a resurgence of post-mill okay. thinking. And we're just getting it sorted out we're just we're still getting organized and uh -huh. you know um, so that's the first thing then the second thing is well historically has there ever been uh, you know post millennials are not known for their um, sense of mission and, I, and immediately I thought David Livingston right, right. All right what about let, let's go back to when post millennial believers were plentiful uh -huh. when there were a lot of them well they invented right Modern yeah. Yeah. You know, the, Edwards would be a, Ed, right. Edwards would be an example of it. So some of the great missions thinkers and um, and laborers in the harvest were post millennial, and when post millennialism d uh, died is too strong. But when it waned, Declined, when yeah. it would, when yeah. it waned, a lot of the cultural impetus for ongoing missions was picked up by the premillennial dispensational uh, mm -hmm. folks, uh, and and. Hats off to them and thank the Lord for them and everything. They're, they're doing this. But I think it's, uh, um, I'm not quite sure that they could have, given their theology, gotten it established I see. The, uh, the same way the post-millennial uh, post uh, believers did. And once, if, as I believe God gives us uh, a resurgence of post-millennial optimism, I have every expectation that there will be a, a magnificent, surge in missions because of it. Well, I mean, how could there not be? Uh -huh. If you believe that that the world will be, all the nations will be converted and everybody will come to Christ, and yeah. you know, how is that, how yeah. is that inconsistent with a view of missions? Right. So, and maybe, that, maybe that's a question there. Um, you know, you said post-millennial optimism. Is the, is, the opti is the optimism really the thing? Is that really the sort of thing in terms of what you're after? Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to sort of, uh, um, you know, schematic diagrams of, uh, uh, post-millennial thought or something like that. I mean, like, um, in other words, can you have optimistic premillennials, optimistic amillennials, yeah. and and what you're advocating for is the optimism, correct? More than the other. Uh, if I, um, I heard Gary North or read Gary North one time said, "There's only two eschatologies." Uh -huh. He's, he called them optimillennialism and pessimillennialism. Okay. And I'm not interested in what I call the train schedules approach to eschatology. Um, I don't think we ought to have detailed schematic diagrams and then revelation breaks out and uh -huh. you know I don't think we know enough yet to to be dogmatic okay. there um, but I think we can get the gist and get the general flow right. and so an optimistic premillennialist would be someone like Charles Spurgeon uh -huh. 
Right. He was optimistic pre-mill. There are a number of amillennial uh, folks that yep. are optimistic. Yep. Uh, enough for me, a good book, um, Roderick Campbell's um, Israel and the New Covenant. Okay. It's, so yeah, God, you go, go. Yeah. Okay. Um, post-millennials, post-millennialists have to be optimistic by definition. Amillennialists might or might not be. Right. Uh, and premillennials might or might not be. Right. But there's nothing inherently inconsistent gotcha. okay. uh, in the different eschatological positions that prevents optimism from be- taking root in all three. Okay. So then maybe one last criticism. Um, and this, this seems to be, um, I think, a fairly serious one in that if you think that things are going to get better and better and better, even if we're defining that sort of long view, um, what does that do to a theology of suffering, which seems in the New Testament to sort of be just core? Paul thinks that, that, that Paul believes that the gospel advances through apostolic suffering. And if you think that the suffering is going to be diminishing as we right. get closer and closer to Christ's return, doesn't that sort of undermine this, this core thing that the, the, the way that God is going to move in the world is through a suffering church? Well, if it undermines it, it only undermines it in the same way that going to heaven does. Right. Okay. Right. If, um, uh, if we so we go to heaven, uh, can we grow in our love for Christ there? Okay. I see. Can yep. can we praise Him more and more there? Can we mature and and be strengthened there? Well, golly, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I hope that we're not standing around forever and ever. Yeah. Stuck. Sort of stuck. So if if sanctification and growth and uh, approaching God is something that can be done in the resurrection without any tears at all, uh-huh. right? Then certainly God could figure out a way to have it happen for us in a world where uh, tears are fewer, enemies yep. more and more enemies are defeated, and, and so right. forth. Okay. So in Isaiah where it says the man who dies when he's 100 is considered accursed, uh-huh. what that tells you is... Uh, one, people in that setting still die, right? Uh-huh. Everybody dies in uh-huh. that setting, uh, but 100 years old seems like the man yeah. who's cut off in his prime. Yeah. And and that also relativizes the affliction. Right, yeah. Right? I get you know, so um, everybody has to, everybody wherever they live has to deal with things. Uh-huh. And so when I, as a pastor in the 20th century, when I, uh, P.J. O'Rourke said he could refute those who say there is no progress with one word. And he said that word is dentistry. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> right. So um, I, I can go to a dentist regularly and f- experience no pain at all. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Um, and 500 years ago, that was not the case. Possible. Yeah. Now, does that mean that I've got no worries or that I've got nothing to trust God for or that, yeah. th- or that fam- family members can't die or that I can't? love people who go to be with the Lord or that I have to work through. Well, no, I have to work through all of those things and I have to do it the way the apostles modeled for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so f- 50 years before the end, when, when things are glorious, uh, c- where someone from 50 AD looking at that would be flum- flummoxed. Yeah. Nevertheless, for the person living in that era, he must take up his cross daily. And still follow, and still follow Christ, okay. and that will be a meaningful thing to have to for him to have to do. Okay, and he will be doing it in a way that is building on the maturity of the church beforehand, and and so I, I so I believe there's going to be a way to further up and further in it, even then, even then. So so that we're not talking about sort of a premature health wealth 
prosperity type. Right. There will always be temptations in this fallen world to put yourself first as opposed to the other. There will yeah. always be opportunities for me to die, uh -huh. for me to give it right up, for me to, for me to, uh, for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That will always, that's never going out of, so it's not like we're going to crest the, the lip of the golden age and then say, <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad all that, that self-denial stuff is over. Uh -huh. you know, now downhill, downhill into heaven. Okay. No. So um, one of the things that some people who aren't familiar with Edwards don't know is that he was actually fired from his church. Yes. And he was fired. Um, a lot of reasons played into it. But um, one of the key things, sort of the catalyst at the end, was a controversy over uh, communion. Mm -hmm. And so uh, maybe try to set up that controversy. What was it about and, and how he ran afoul of his congregation? Um, here's the... Uh, man, this is a complicated... Yeah, thing. right. Um, the, the New England Puritans were Paedo-Baptists, right? uh, which meant that they uh, baptized infants. And because they had settled uh, New England and built the whole thing up from scratch... Uh, your status with the church also affected your status status with the township or your citizenship or yep. you know who you were in that society. Um, so in England, people who thought like these New England Puritans did were dissenters; they were outside. But here, they were the they were the establishment. Yeah, they were. Uh, so um, the halfway covenant was not the point where they decided to officially downgrade. Um, it was their attempt to keep the standards up. So this is what happened. Um, because they were, uh, because they were Paedo-Baptists, they baptized their babies, and that was virtually a universal uh, practice. Then, because they were um, hardline, experiential, you know, you must have an ex uh, a conversion experience yeah. that you can credibly explain to us. Right. They linked that to the Lord's Supper. Okay. Right. So you would be baptized as an infant and be in the church and be in the society and be in the, in the thing. And then if you had a Damascus Road experience, yep. then you were allowed to come to the table. Right. Okay, so far so good. Now what happens if you have people who grow up under that? They're baptized, they're members, they attend church all the time. Uh, 22 years can go by pretty quick. Yep. They meet someone else in the same condition. Uh -huh. uh, baptized but not communicant, they get married uh -huh. and they have a kid. Right. And they ask if their kid can be baptized. Yeah. Now that's what the halfway covenant was about. Because because the issue is is that because they haven't had the the Damascus Road experience, their status in terms of uh, are they born again or not? Right. Well, no, they're not because they haven't had the Damascus Road right. experience. Right. So they're they're not communicant, but they're. They believe the truth of the Christian religion. Right. And that, so what the halfway covenant did was it said, okay, when they want their kid baptized, if, because if their child was not baptized, yeah. there are all sorts of citizenship issues and yeah. you know, st standing in the community issues and that sort of thing. So the halfway covenant said, um, if this non-communicant couple that haven't had the Damascus Road experience stand up in front of the church and profess their faith in the Christian religion and... In, in short, profess a, a, a sort of meet a standard that's much, much higher than anything done by the average evangelical today. Right. <laughs> right. I, we're going to bring up our child in the 
yeah. uh, in the faith and we believe the truth of the Christian religion and we're, you know, we're committed, then they would baptize the baby. That was the halfway covenant. Now, the, the, weird, the odd thing was if, those, if that same family um, went to virtually any Reformed church in Europe, Mm-hmm. They would have been received as full members, right? Lord's table, everything. Lord, everything. Lord's table, baptize the child. They would have re- been received as full members. But the New England Puritans were trying to hold the line on uh, a convul- uh, convulsive uh, Damascus Road experience, and that's the the Lord's table is where they uh, drew that line. Now, this is where I would part from Edwards and agree with him and part with him. I believe I believe in the absolute necessity of the new birth. I'm an evangelical Christian. There's two kinds of people in the world, the kind that go to heaven and the kind that go to hell. Some of those who go to hell are professing church members who go to hell. There must be something that distinguishes them, and it's the new heart that Mm -hmm. distinguishes them. The the danger is among cultural evangelicals is that we think we keep trying to figure out surefire external indicators of that new heart change, you know, either a convulsive conversion experience or some traditions speaking in tongues or, you know, there's got to be something that we can track. We've got to be able to tag this thing mm-hmm. and track it. So uh, the convulsive, and, and later I think Edwards was wiser when he's talking about the, you know, what are the marks of mm-hmm. a, a truly converted person. You're, it's not something you can tell in a convulsive moment of right. time. So, um, so they, that halfway covenant does that. Then um, Edwards fought in, in, um, in Northampton, his his, he followed his grandfather, yep. who Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard was kind of a an outlier in the Puritan world. Um, something of a liberal, uh, liberal is the wrong word, I put quotation marks around right. liberal. Yep. But sort of in that very tightly knit world, he was on the left of that a world. looser, yeah, L- yeah right. looser. So he believed that the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance. Okay. Um, and so that he was much more likely to allow people who had not had this dramatic change to come to the Lord's table. But he was, but he would say, and I grant that they haven't been converted. They haven't had this. Yeah. Uh, but and, I, and, and because the thing is, is that it's not just that the ministers are saying you're not converted. It's that by their own testimony, a lot of times they'd say, well, no, I, I haven't had that. I'm not born right. again. I'm, I'm unregenerate. Right. But I've been baptized, and I'm a member in good standing. And I believe all this. And I, be- and I believe it, but I, I haven't had this. Now, Solomon Stoddard um, wanted to admit those people to the table and in the, in the hope that, that over, over time this would help. This would be a converting ordinance. So um, Solomon Stoddard was very w- well-respected, and the church in Northampton yeah. um, um, church admi- admired him and yeah. so forth. So Edwards... Um, replaces is is the heir to this pulpit um, that his grandfather had so it's a family member thing it's yep. a but Edwards was much more in sympathy with the more uh, strident evangelicalism yep. of the surrounding yep. of, uh, uh, the surrounding area and so over but he was not a fire breather either he it's he sort of inherited this situation yeah. from Stoddard and sort of was worked with it you mm-hmm. know uh, but there was a one incident. I forget the details. A young lady, I think, yeah, who um, wanted to who wanted to come to the table but hadn't had the, had, had that. So she would have understoddered, no problem, come to the table. And and Edwards didn't. It wasn't a throwdown. Absolutely not over my dead body. It was more that he wanted to put some sort of parameters or some sort of definition yeah. on it. 
and the church um, revolted, you know, mm -hmm. um, against this because they they really liked Stoddard's way of doing it, and so that's why. Uh, but Edwards, uh, even there, um, was I thought very mild and, and yeah. responsible. Given his ass assumptions of what was happening, he wasn't trying to do everything at once. Right. He just took one step, and but that was enough. Yeah, and and when it finally builds and builds, and they dismiss him, his his uh, farewell sermon is just an incredible example of uh, charity to this congregation that he loves so much. So so, but, uh, so maybe on the, on the theology of it, though, it seems like there is, regardless of whether we have the Damascus Road uh, requirement that you've got mm -hmm. to have seen, you know, Jesus in the third heaven or something in mm -hmm. order to, to come to the table, the issue for Paedo-Baptists seems to be that you have people who are raised in the church and aren't moral monsters, right? They're not sleeping right. around. They're not, right. um, but they're also not uh, positively demonstrating a lot of, say, fruit of the Spirit. Right. So they're just sort of, they're just good moral folk. Right. Um, and so it seems like that part of the thing that the Puritans and Edwards are concerned about is the, the purity of the church over generations. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so maybe, you know, address that because that's, that's the concern is let's, let's keep the church pure by fencing the table, by, right. by retaining something that requires the new birth. Right. Um, and so, uh, and so you, you're obviously saying that wasn't the way to go. So how do you how do you how deal would with that? It? I, I, I would deal with it by not baptizing babies. Yeah, don't but, don't uh, paint yourself. <laughs> you would say don't paint yourself into that corner. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me tell you why painting yourself into that corner is fine. Right. Um, here's the uh, Baptists and Pado Baptists. Let's say you've got a Baptist church and a Pado Baptist church, and they're both cons they're both very concerned legitimately for the purity of the church over generations. Okay. There are two approaches that are being taken. We both want our nightclubs to be responsible places. Um, the Baptist nightclub hires uh, security guards to check everybody's ID at the door. Okay. Baptism. Oh, baptism. Believers baptism. The okay. Presbyterians hire big bouncers. Okay, so we let anybody in, but we pitch them out, <laughs> right? So the, when everything's running the way it ought to be, and they're both, and I'm assuming two churches concerned for the right uh, things. The, the, right things. Um, the Baptist approach is anticipatory. Uh -huh. Don't let the bad actors in. And the, the Reformed or the Pado-Baptist um, Pado Reformed response is let them in, and if they start to act up, Kick, kick them out. Okay. All right. Now, uh, easier said than done, someone's going to say, right. because of the, precisely because of the kind of people you're describing. They're not down at the saloon every night. Right. They, they're not shooting he's up. Not the, you're not picking fights. He's not, he's just, but, but over time, you get enough of those in a, in a nightclub. Right. And, you know, they, they, it's not they're a cool the, place anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're, they can vote you out and they can, there's right. a, right. So. Right. Now, the, what I come back to here is in, in Proverbs, it says, "Strike the uh, strike the fool, and the simple learn wisdom." Okay. Okay. Churches, whether you're Baptist or Pado Baptist, churches that don't practice discipline have AIDS. They've they've got no way to fight off infection. Okay. And so what happens here is, in um, in a large congregation, let's say you've got, um, you know, let's say 500 or more people in a congregation, you will have opportunities to practice church discipline. Because Paul says in Galatians, when he's talking about 
witchcraft and envies and fightings and mm -hmm. adulteries and so forth. He says the works of the flesh are manifest. He says there's two ways. There's the way of the spirit and the way of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And he says the works of the flesh are manifest. Mm -hmm. Would mean they're obvious. They're obvious. Yeah. You've got handles. You can, you know, okay. at some point in the proceedings, um, a man is going to run off with his secretary and ditch his wife, who's mm -hmm. still in the congregation. What will the congregation do? Now, I believe that if you have a faithful congregation that disciplines that man in the name of Jesus and excommunicates him for his mm -hmm. infidelity, you strike the fool and the simple mm -hmm. learn wisdom. So that's the simple in that case are the sort of moral, maybe unregenerate members of the church who right. that's a wake-up call. Right. Oh, they're not fooling around here. Uh -huh. uh, they mean business. Uh -huh. You know, I might want to pay closer attention and listen to the gospel, or I might want to tiptoe out. Of, I'm, yeah. You know, I might want to find another church that's more conducive. And I th so I think that, um, and every pastor will tell you that there are people, the lights are on, but nobody's home. You know, mm -hmm. you, you're preaching away and, and you think, this person has not caused me a moment's trouble in the church, but I don't think they're getting anything. Yeah. Right. They're just here. And, and it's amazing how much can bounce off someone's forehead. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I don't think I'm called to peer into hearts and figure out that. If I, if I have a, I call it a pastoral, if my pastoral vibometer is buzzing and arcing, you know, mm -hmm. how's so-and-so doing? And there's nothing, that, there's no presenting problem. There's nothing, there's no works of the flesh that are manifest right. for me to deal with. Then how do I solve that? I don't think that that's something I can solve by kicking him out or chasing him or saying, do you really know... Um, do you really know Jesus? I think I need to address that in my preaching, in my, in my prayers and in my preaching. Hmm. I want my prayers and preaching to bring the rocks to the surface mm -hmm. and where I can get at them lawfully, yeah. right? Uh -huh. So, the, so the, the takeaway then is regardless of the, the pedo-baptism, the, the church discipline piece feels like it's, the, it's the, the thing where there's some at least some common ground that we've got to be doing that. Right. Because in the South, let's flip this around. In, in the Bible Belt, in the South, everybody's a, everybody's a Christian until they get their driver's license. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? And, um, and I, grew up in, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. And what would happen is when you get to be about 10, the deacons would do a sweep through the Sunday school. Yeah. It's time to go forward. Uh -huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Right. And all these kids would go forward. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's as much a cultural um, expectation yeah. in that system as the as baptism of infants is, and the churches are going to be just as nominal and just as dead if they don't discipline on the far on the far side uh, on of, the yeah. far side of the discipline, and just as lively and just as um, robust and evangelical if they do. So you used Edwards to come to Reformed theology. He was one of the influences. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess in the past year or so, you taught a class on Edwards. You kind of, right. you kind of brought him back. I've noticed a couple of blog posts where you've right. mentioned him. And so what kind of sparked that, and, and what have you been reading lately? Well, um, uh, yes, the, the, the impetus to, to teaching the course in Edwards, as you well know, <laughs> you are a culprit in this, um, is uh, when you came and spoke at Disputatio at New St. Andrews, one of the points you made, or it may have been several points, is that uh, you thought it was bizarre that we didn't have a class in Edwards 
because of. I think the, it's bizarre that anybody doesn't have a class in Edwards. Yeah, so, yeah. so maybe, so maybe you weren't being as insightful as you <laughs> yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everybody should do. Yeah, but us in particular, because the sort of the emphasis at NSA and and what we're doing, emphasis on on Trinitarian theology, the importance of the Trinity, an emphasis on typological reading uh, of Scripture, not at the expense of what it's saying in the historical grammatical sense, but right. a, a, a yep. typological understanding of Scripture, what the Puritans used to call experiential experiential yep. religion, personal piety, personal yep. holiness. These things and others um, were things that we were emphasizing and pushing, and there's this one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, who's also an American, mm-hmm. who also has these yep. same distinctive emphases, many of which are lost on people who who will say Edwards was a great preacher yep. and they'll say he was part of the revivals and that's the extent of what they, right. that's the extent of how much they or how far they would go yep. and I thought well that's you know that's a fair cop that's that's a good point so I thought I'll, I'll do an, an elective on Edwards and I'd read some um, you know the, some of the things I mentioned before uh, years ago in Edwards so I um, read some more stuff I uh, looked at Marsden's I, I didn't have time time constraints I couldn't didn't read the full Marsden thing but he's got a short sure, yeah. short sure. biography of uh, of um, Edwards and and his uh, uh, Edwards book on the typological reading and and uh, Edwards on uh, uh, on the Trinity um, and put together a uh, put together a course on it and the impact of that uh, so I was I was playing catch up in my reading for the course uh-huh. and didn't quite catch up but one of the things it did and it was uh, I thought I I need to read the collected works of Edwards before uh-huh. I die you know so uh-huh. one of the things I um, one of the things I determined to do is um, buy one of those Yale uh, yeah. Yale volumes work my way through it uh-huh. and then get another one uh-huh. and work my way through it okay so um, I, I thought Edwards is a is a theologian who repays study with dividends. Mm-hmm. So if, if you read through it, there are all kinds of things that he's addressing that are relevant. To, uh-huh. I, I, I just ran across something a few weeks ago uh, on um, on Edwards' um, views on justification, the relationship of justification by faith alone yep. and works, yep. and all, you know a lot of the things that are roiling the reform world today. Yep. Uh, Edwards shows, you know, Edwards makes the sorts of distinctions that need to be made, and his reform bona fides are well established. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you can say I'm, I'm with the, I'm with him, and that might help calm some things down. Yeah, that's good. So uh, one of the things that Marsden actually says about Edwards, um, and so I'm wondering how you how you've seen this in, in your readings, is he says uh, for Edwards everything is related because everything is related to God. Mm-hmm. And and I've heard you talk about integrated thinking, which that seem, there seems to be a natural right. connection there. So how how do we see Edwards as an integrated thinker? What does that mean? Okay, um, I don't think you can talk about integration of all things in a Christian worldview without talking about integration of all things in Christ. And then you can't because in Christ, in Colossians in Christ all things hold together. But then you can't talk about Christ without talking about who Christ was. And you can't do that without talking about the Trinity. Right. So uh, you're two steps, and, you yeah, know, and yeah. you're into the Trinity. Otherwise, what you're going to wind up with is sort of uh, what I would describe as a Unitarian or Muslim form of integration, yeah. which is a column of power. So right. there's this giant 
there, there's this giant hermit monad at the top of the universe yep. telling everybody what to do, and everything's integrated. Yeah. But but it's integrated in in um, you do this, you do this. Yeah. Everything is uh, just one note. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's conformity and uniformity is the name of the game. Yeah. So we become like what we worship in in Psalm 115. The, the idols have eyes and can't see and noses can't smell, ears can't hear. Those that make of them are like unto them. And Paul says in Corinthians, we, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. As we behold Christ, we become more like Christ. When we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him as he is. So you become like what you worship. If you worship the ultimate Unitarian God of deism yep. or the God of American civic religion or Allah, then what you're going to do is you're going to get a boring conformist monochrome culture. Right. If you worship the pantheon of you know all these polytheistic deities, yep. if you've got multiplicity at the top, you're going to have chaos at the bottom. You're going to kind of like what we have uh, in the decadent West. And or if you want to have form and freedom together, yeah. which I think in the colonial era a number of people understood, you have to have form and freedom in God. In God. Yeah. And and you have to have that, and so that leads you right into Trinitarian thinking, and that's the point of integration. So um, Christ is the way God manifests himself to us, and if you would come to Christ, we come to the Father. Right. No man comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. So I right. think that that's the way we integrate. It's a Christocentric integration. Okay, so um, Edwards on the Trinity is, is interesting because, for one, he... It is sort of, uh, I think one scholar calls it the subterranean river that sort of runs underneath everything. Right. But he never actually publishes anything on the Trinity itself. What we have is sort of this unpublished essay. Um, but in that, he he begins not with sort of a, a list of Bible verses of what, um, you know, where you can prove that Jesus is God. He begins with this sort of extended analogy um, where, and, and it's, it's usually called the psychological model of the Trinity. So mm -hmm. maybe talk a little bit about that and the helpfulness of using models like that in order to kind of grasp the Trinity. Right. The first thing to, to, to say is that one of the reasons why it's important for us to stick close to the Bible in the first place, and I would say stick close to the historic creeds, uh, by that I mean Nicaea Chalcedon. and Chalcedon, is when we talk about things like the psychological model of the Trinity, uh, like like Augustine's, um, you know, in the internal workings of yeah. one person, yeah. which some critics say veers toward, you know, uh, Unita yeah, yeah, Unitarianism. Unitarian. Yeah. And then you have the sociological model, which uh, some critics say veers toward um, like a small village or... Yeah, right, tritheism at least. Tritheism. Confronted with those things, I, I want to say, well, yes. You know, yeah. why, why do I have to, why are you making me choose? Right. But behind that, I would say, um, remember that we are June bugs trying to discuss quantum physics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and June bugs have a hard time getting up to the blackboard, yeah, much less holding it. the chalk, yeah. and, and saying, well, here's, here's what I think yeah. about the internal workings of the almighty, infinite God. Yeah. Now, give me a break. What we know is what is revealed to us. Okay. And, the, the, and so I think, um, I believe that when you... When you look at Scripture, you've got three persons distinctly re revealed uh, here, and you also have here the O Lord, the, the uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, that is distinctly mm -hmm. revealed, and you have the Father revealed as God, and mm -hmm. and the Son as God, and the Spirit as God, and one God. And yet this is so I, the, I've got all the, those elements on the table, 
and I, I should just accept them. And that means if you catch me in my lecture on Thursday, you might think I'm veering toward the sociological model. If you catch yeah. me on Monday, it's going to be the psychological model. And the, the, way I, the reason I find Edwards talking about this helpful is that he says the most obvious things with different words uh-huh. and just rocks you back on your heels. Uh-huh. Like um, if I say something with a Bible word like uh, Christ is the wisdom of God, uh-huh. Proverbs 8. Christ, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Or the word of God. He's the word of God and everything that a word carries. Yeah. And then Edwards comes along and says Christ is the idea of God. Yeah, Christ, yeah. Christ is God's idea of Himself, yeah. and you go, oh, yeah. you know. But that's what I just said. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> what that John different? Went, yeah. How is that different than? Yeah. How's idea different than wisdom? Right. Well, Edwards is not using it differently, but he does. He says it in ways that bring you up short. Right. That yeah, kind of shock you. And it's the same thing with the Holy Spirit when he he wants to link the Holy Spirit closely to love and joy, and then sort of point at these particular texts where you you'll have you know God is love. And God is in us, and then it says love is in us, and He just says, "I wonder if we're supposed to learn anything from that." And then it's and then it says, "And the Holy Spirit is in us," and so you right. begin to sort of start to connect these dots, and you right. kind of go, "I don't think I would have noticed that before." Right. And but He's not He's not out on the skinny branches when He's doing this. Right. He's yeah. He's just pointing to things that are right there on the surface of the text. In the text, right? Um, so then, uh, as we as we think about Trinitarian integrated thinking. What does that do when we when we then come to the question of you know what is God doing in in creation? Why why if you have this God who is um, he's Father Son and Holy Spirit eternally happy eternally self sufficient no needs no wants Almighty God and then all of a sudden here's this right. here's this world um, that seems to create a problem right. because if, if he has no needs he has no nothing no deficiencies to make up and yet here it is yeah Edwards describes it as an overflow. But it's not an it's not a necessary overflow. It's not like right. the it's not like the levee broke because it had. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it got exploded <laughs> one day. One day, and then here's the world. Yeah. It's not like um, it's it's not like it had to happen, or God did not create out of necessity, but He created out of His own wisdom and His own desire to manifest His glory yeah. uh, to others. So it's an overflow, but it's not something He was compelled to do. Yeah, and. Uh, so, yeah, why, and, and this is where I think a, a good dose of Calvinism is helpful. Why did God create the world? Because he felt like it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, why, you know, yeah. he felt like it. Uh, he did these things in, in accordance with the good counsel of his will. Right. Um, yeah. And so I think Edwards is really helpful on that sort of thing, yeah, too. Yeah, he, he, uh, I think in, it's in the end for which God created the world over and over again. He, he'll say it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was proper, it was fitting. And he's so careful to say it wasn't necessary. Right. You know, God didn't need to. But given who he was, this mm-hmm. was a fitting and appropriate thing to do. Right. Right. Um, and so then, uh, and so he's he's perhaps most famous for, in some ways, um, at least among a lot of evangelicals, for saying God's end in creation is the communication, emanation, uh, manifestation of His own glory. Right. Now that answer rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Right. And who does, who does God think He yeah, is? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, God. Um, so, um, but in giving that answer, um, how can how so I'm wondering, can we connect the dots between this sort of Trinitarianism that's so, so core and this idea of um, he's, he's passionately committed to himself and he does all things for his own glory? Right. If you, if you understand God passionately conv- committed to himself and his own glory, 
in the Unitarian deistic sense, then you've got a you do have a megaloma, uh, megalomaniac on your hands right. at the top, and and of course since that's an incoherent, it's incoherent to have incoherence yeah. at the top. Yeah. Right. Uh, but that's what you would that's what you have. You would have a real problem explaining or defending the ultimate ego in the sky. Yeah. Right. Okay. But what but the fundamental revelation is that God is love, and not that God is power or that God is uh, glorious and consumed with his own sense of glory in a Unitarian way. God is love, which requires a beloved mm -hmm. and requires a lover, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so, um, but since the Father, Son, and Spirit are all partakers of the same divine substance, it's his own glory that he's seeking simultaneously with it being sacrificial. Right. Um, yeah. And so you have... Um, you, not only do you have one and many at the top, one and three at the top, you have uh, identity and distinction, form and freedom, love and you know uh, uh, a giving a, a display of your own glory, but it's done in such a way that it's the glory of another. Yeah. And then it's and when the Father glorifies the Son, then the Son glorifies the Father. Yeah. And then the Spirit glorifies them both. Right. So I don't think there's any getting out. I don't think there's any reasonable way out of this outside of Trinitarian categories. So you've mentioned that uh, one of the things that's attractive about Edwards is uh, his typology, which is um, sort of one of those things that not a lot of people really explore. Um, and so maybe just begin by what, what do we mean by typology? What is that? And, uh, and, and how can that, why is that so important for us? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, first, the definition. Um, typology is a biblical word, as is the counterpart, antitype. Okay. So um, in Romans 5, Paul says that Adam is a tupos, a, a, Christ, a type of Christ. Um, and then Peter and, uh, tells us that Christian baptism is an antitype of Noah's flood is a type. And Christian baptism is the antitype okay. of this, is a fulfillment of that. So... Um, and then in Hebrews, you've got uh, every all the elements of the tabernacle furniture re represent things in the heavenly. Sure. So, so typology is the um, practice of learning how to read the scriptures and the the um, components of the biblical world, mm -hmm. tabernacle, temple, sure. things like that, is Israel's history um, uh, with a spiritual significance that rides above the the express grammatical meaning of the sentences. Okay. And then Edwards takes it a step further uh -huh. and yep. re and reads um, natural revelation typologically. Right. Um, so uh, so he'll say the the uh, the sun and the moon have spiritual significance. And right. Death has a spiritual significance, and so he'll look at yeah. trees and rivers and all of that. Yeah. So I think one of them he says that you know vultures are a type of demons who feast on. And dead yeah. flesh, or something right. like that, and so he sees he sees vultures as a type, and and uh, silkworms are a type of resurrection and things like that. Correct. Okay. And so, t uh, typology means that this is basically it's an in a, in the world it would be a three dimensional metaphor. Um, this okay. This points to that. This means that, and God put it that there because He expects us to read it uh, and know how to read, uh, and and it should be. And for Edwards, it goes beyond. Man, this universe is a big place. Somebody must have made it. 
Right. Um, so it's not just the generic, you know, there, there must be a cause because look, it's all here. Right. It's, it's more specific. It's specific. You can flip the pages of nature's book. Okay. And so Edwards says that that's a, uh, a spiritual reading or a typological reading. And he anticipates the objection that people will say that he's a man of very fruitful brain. Or, or yeah. Fruitful, fruitful brain and copious <laughs> fancy. And we're going to, you know, mock him for his. Right. Now, let's acknowledge at the outset, which I think Edwards does, yeah. that there is such a thing as fruitful brains and copious, and copious fancies. fancies. And, yes. and so one of the first things that people want to know, and they are right to know before they climb into the typological car, is are there any breaks on this exactly. thing? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what is this? Is this rule guided behavior? Yeah. You know, or is it just winging it? Where I, yeah. I, I have this, um, where people say sometimes I think my pastor is onto something, and other times I just think he's on something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where did he get that? Where does that come from? But one of the experience, the, the experience I had reading Edwards' book on typology. Yeah. Because this was an aspect of Edwards' thought that surprised me. Uh -huh. I, I didn't know that that was there. Yeah. Um, um, so when I read through his uh, work on typology, the thing that that struck me, uh, it reminds me of what um, Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan. If you pricked him anywhere, his blood would run bibline. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so you read, you're reading uh, his book on typology. The most obvious thing about it is that this is this was a man absolutely marinated in scripture. Right. Yep. He he knew scripture backwards and forwards. So it was not a question of this verse I read this morning in my out of context devotional right. reminded me of something. Yeah. You know, this verse reminded me of the space shuttle and yeah. so that <laughs> and, must and be. so that that must be it. That's fanciful um, that's fanciful uh, uh, brains, fruit fru uh, fruitiness. Yeah. But what Edwards does is he's letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Uh -huh. He's uh, it's very clearly part of an integrated whole. And even if you get to something where you say, eh, "I don't think, I don't, I don't think I'd take it that way," uh -huh. you're not taking it the way um, a sober, respectable yeah. Christian is taking it. It's, yeah. You could actually have a discussion about it. You could say, "I don't think this works because," and give reasons, and those, and he might say, "Oh, that's a good point." And, and I would have every expectation that someone as judicious as he obviously is being uh -huh. would recognize yeah. a, a, a good point. Now, have, so where do you? Why, why do we have to? Why is this important? Well, without typology, you have no reason for rebuking the Jews for missing Jesus. Okay. Okay. Um, Jesus, Jesus is revealed in the Old Testament, but he's revealed in the Old Testament typologically. Okay. Um, if you if you want historical grammatical um, revelations of the coming Christ that are that sort of pinpoint right. it, you're you're not going to get it. Uh -huh. um, the so people say oftentimes people say now. This is how the apostle. Yeah, they admit the apostles yeah. read the Old Testament typologically, but you're not an apostle. You're not yeah, an apostle. Yeah, you're Paul. not Paul. You're not you're Peter. Not. You can't do this. Good, yeah, cool. and, and you'd say that you can do it. I'd say you must okay. because the 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 Jews who rejected Jesus when when he came, the the people who crucified him, the people who hated him, the people who did not see him mm -hmm. in the scriptures, did not. Uh, they weren't apostles either. Right. Right. But they were responsible. For not, seeing him. for not seeing him, they they had every um, uh, they had every obligation to see Jesus in 
the Psalms uh -huh. to see. So when Jesus opens the minds of the apostles, the, the disciples, yeah. and he opened the scriptures, opened their minds so they could see the scriptures and, and they could see yep. that all of the Old Testament, the whole sweep of the Old Testament, as it says in Acts 3, from Samuel down to the, yeah. down, all of this is about Jesus. Uh -huh. um, and Jesus rebukes the Jews in John, um, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me. Huh. Well, how do they bear witness to him? Well, I'll tell you how. Uh, Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Yeah. Don't you see Jesus? Yeah, right. All right. Now, if I'm a, if I'm a historical, uh, critical, uh, look it up in the lexicon. Yeah. And, and if, it ain't, if it ain't in the lexicon and if I can't diagram the sentence, it ain't there. Right. Well, if that's the case, then the Caiaphas, who said, don't tell me a fish story out of Jonah and, ex yeah. and expect me to see death and resurrection. Yeah. Uh, you know, good you grief. Can't, you can't argue with that. You, uh, yeah. So basically, typological, um, I, I believe that typology is absolutely essential to uh, a, a recovery of Christocentric living and thinking and preaching. Absolutely essential. Okay. Now, I say that acknowledging that you can wreck that too. Uh -huh. Someone can say, yes, hooray for typology, and then hop in that car and run it, drive it into a tree. Yeah, yeah. They could do that. So, um, so it's one thing to say, and, I, and I, a lot of evangelicals at least would be open to the idea that, okay, we've got Jesus is a greater Solomon. That's explicit in the text. The apostles tell us, and Jesus is a greater... Uh, he's, he's Moses, the, you know, the greater Moses. Mm -hmm. And so you'd say, well, the Bible never says he's the greater Joseph right. from Genesis. But you can draw the parallels and say, you know, here's a guy mm -hmm. who's persecuted by his brothers and he goes into a pit and he comes out of a pit. And right. so you kind of start to see, okay, there's parallels. We can say Jesus is the greater Joseph. Where people, I think, begin to feel fuzzy is when you then do what Edwards does and sort of take that on the road. Right. And you leave the, the safe confines of Scripture. Right. And now you're you know, driving down, pointing at the stars and pointing at this and pointing at that. So what are the checks to keep us from uh, identifying things out in the world, out of nature? Right. Um, and, and maybe as a, another piece of this would be history, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, because Edwards seems to think that you can read historical events, not just biblical events, but mm -hmm. current events. Correct. And so that feels to everybody like that's, that's going to be, uh, you know, Pat Robertson saying, you know, yeah. homosexuals cause Katrina. Right. And everybody immediately shrieks and says, no, we can't do that. No, none of that right. here. And so how do, we, how do we constrain it a little bit once we're out away from the biblical text? Um, the first thing to recognize is where our skittishness came <clears throat> from about historical events. Yeah. Um, and a good book on this would be uh, Mark Knoll's um, the, uh, the American Civil War, The Civil War is Theological Crisis. Okay. Yep. Um, because, and that's where this trepidation about um, talking about the world and what God was up to came in because you had the nation divided into two halves, both sides uh, heavily Christian, both sides claiming to be able to read the events, and then yeah. you had this carnage and bloodbath, and it really shook. Yeah, Everybody uh, it, got gun-shy. Everybody got gun-shy. And so when you say uh, something like, um, Jesus says, um, when I've talked about reading events, how do we read an event like 9-11? Are we, are we responsible to read yeah. an event like 9-11 or Katrina or whatever? And I think yes, and we're responsible to read it responsibly. When I say, yes, we should, we should do this, we should read it responsibly as a sign, um, well, how, how do we do that? Well, 
Jesus says, those that the Tower of Siloam fell, fell on, um, do you think they were any worse sinners than anybody else? Uh, unless you repent, you will also all likewise perish. Now, oftentimes those who oppose a typological reading of history will say, but Jesus rebuked people for reading uh, yeah. the Tower of Siloam collapse. No, Jesus rebuked them for getting the wrong meaning out of it. Right. Not for getting a meaning out of it. Right. Um, they, what people did is they looked at the collapse of the Tower of Siloam and said, man, the people in that tower must, must have been really, really bad. bad. And Jesus said, no, the right, the right meaning is that this is a foreshadowing. This is a harbinger of something that's to come. come. Yeah. Right. So the meaning is they are sinners like, just like you. They didn't repent and were judged, and you need to repent. Or, you'll or, or you will likewise perish. So Jesus is teaching us how to read events like that. Yeah. Now, if someone is overspecifies, which means that they go into a, um, they they look at the 9/11 happened because Congress failed to pass the Clean Water Act. Or, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you're not reading those events in the way that such events are read in Scripture. Right. So I should, uh, as I walk through the world, if, as I look at the natural phenomena like sun, moon, and stars, or I look at trees, or I look at mountains, or I look at historical events, I should have the guidebook in my hand. I should be like Edwards, mar right. marinated in, in Scripture. Um, so I, I, I have some sort of training wheels. Right. I, I think, I think what he, he actually has this uh, description where he says, T types are like a language, mm -hmm. and uh, and scripture in that sense is like a, a grammar book or something where you, a place you go, you learn to speak it, learn the rules, learn how it works, and then you go out and you're supposed to read all sorts of stuff. Right. But you can't go out, you can't you, you can't go to a foreign country and start reading the signs and saying, oh, this means that, that means this. Right. Unless and, you know the language. Right. And when you set yourself to learn a foreign language, you're going to make some bumbling, halting attempts. Yeah. Right. You know, as Chesterton says, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Uh, and so when you when you start trying to read the world this way, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna butcher some stuff. Uh -huh. Well, okay then, be humble yourself, be willing to be taught. Uh, be taught. Okay. Right. Very good. One of the things in my reading of Edwards um, that I've detected, I think. Um, and not surprising given, um, you know, I, I work at Bethlehem uh, College and Seminary and John Piper and, and Christian Hedonism, and the two big roots of that are Jonathan Edwards, outside the Bible, Jonathan Edwards, and C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And some people might look at that and say, that's odd yeah. combination. Um, and as I've sort of read Edwards and read Lewis, I don't think it's as odd of a combination. No, I think there's a deep... And so maybe maybe explore that a little bit, given that you've said, I think, before that the, the person, the theologian who has had the most influence on you outside the Bible is Lewis. Yeah. So in reading Edwards, what connections, what com, uh, camaraderie did you see between the two? Well, um, let me make it a, three, uh, a threefold chord, which is not Piper, Edwards, and Lewis. Mm -hmm. The thing that all three of them emphasize and that they... That they, they teach, point out, admit, and it's a, a very obvious thing about human choices, is that everybody chooses that which they believe to be good, and that which they believe to be good for them. Okay, now there's a way of doing it selfishly. Right. Every, you, the difference between 
good and evil is determined by what you call good, not whether you pursue good. Right. Um, so this is the fundamental all men seek happiness idea. Correct. And I think it's indisputable, undeniable. That nobody, um, so if, if somebody says, well, uh, someone, and, and this goes back to Edward's freedom of the will. Right. When, when you choose uh, the, the, the will is a, like, a, like those uh, little bins full of teddy bears at the state fair. There's a little mechanical arm that mm-hmm. you can pay a quarter and, and grab to try and get a teddy bear for your girlfriend. Well, the will is this mechanical arm. Uh-huh. Your heart is the bin with the, the contents. The mechanical harm, uh, arm has no ability to determine the contents of the chest. Uh-huh. Um, it just has the ability to identify and haul out what's right. it, whatever's in there. Um, Piper sees that. Edwards sees that very clearly. The whole treatise on the freedom of the will yeah. is just demonstrates this, blows the doors off the, that that whole thing. Yeah. A free there's no such thing as free will. They're mm-hmm. free agents, but free will if, in the absolute sense. Yeah, in the not. absolute sense, if there were such a thing as free will, we would call such a person insane. If if someone has free will, autonomous will, where they had the ability to choose contrary to their strongest desire. Yep. Why did you throw the vase against the wall? Because I wanted to go for a walk. That's what I really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, not incoherent. Free, that's not free will. That's incoherence. That's insanity. Yeah. So Edwards teaches that what you choose is what you wanted by definition. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. D- d- yeah. What you choose is what you wanted by definition. And it's sort of a bracing, clear-headed, argue with that. Yeah, it's, it's a really obvious thing, but you ne- we need to be told it. Right. And so he walks, us, he, he walks through the psychology of the will in this wonderful, in this wonderful way. So um, uh, if I could quote my father, my dad preached for us uh, uh, at Christ Church a, a year or so ago, and he was making a point that everything, absolutely everything you do, you're to be serving. You're serving God or not, mm-hmm. you know. And some he said someone's going to say, "Well, if I'm what if I'm sleeping?" And he said, "Well, you either should be or shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, you, you either should one be. The other. It's one or the other. You should be should be sleeping, in which yeah. case you're honoring God, or you shouldn't be. Everything everything comes down to this. And this is why this is why I think his resolutions can be understood in a healthy way, because." He had the kind of incisive mind that saw that everything you do, you're going, you're going one, you know, you're yeah, going yeah. this way or that way. So um, Piper emphasizes Christian hedonism, which is operating out of the same model. Uh-huh. Um, everyone chooses what they believe. Everyone chooses what they desire. Uh-huh. What, um, and uh, Lewis does the same thing in um, he does well, in Reflections on the Psalms, yep. for example. So Lewis says um, that that basically. Um, Lewis uses the example of a man, if a man marries an elderly woman for her money, mm-hmm. the problem is, problem is not that he wants a reward through marriage. through marriage. The problem, Lewis said, is that he's wanting an unnatural reward right. for, for marriage. It's mercenary. It's mercenary. He's, he's, he's attaching a, uh, a motivation to this action not because this action required shouldn't have any motivation, yep. but he's attaching an alien motivation to it. Yep. So, but if a young man marries uh, a, a woman because he wants to constantly be around her, sil- yeah. her silvery laugh, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. right? Well, that's just as much a mo- he's yeah. attracted to that. Yeah, he's he he's wants motivated that. by he's reward. Motivated. So a good man 
good men and evil men are not d divided by the good men desiring nothing and the bad man desiring stuff. Mm -hmm. The thing that separates them is the good man desires good things mm -hmm. and the bad man desires bad things. Mm -hmm. But they both desire and they both delight in, they both mm -hmm. pursue um, the object of their desire. Edwards um, uh, is very clear-headed on this. Lewis is very clear-headed on this. And the, the modern advocate mm -hmm. of, of this particular psychology mm -hmm. is, um, is John Piper. Mm -hmm. So I th th those things go together, and I think they're critical. Mm -hmm. um, so if you say, if I'm standing out in the front yard in the, um, in the rain, and I'm cold and wet, can a Christian go inside and get warm and dry. Well, we know from the Bible that it would be better to be cold and wet and love Jesus mm -hmm. than to be warm and dry and not love Jesus. Right. It would be better to be rich, uh, it would be better to be poor and love Jesus than rich and godless. Yeah. But how about rich and love God? How, how about yeah. poor and godless? Yeah. You know, there are four, there are four options there. Yeah. And, and so when, uh, can, can I, if I'm sick, if I'm, do I know which direction to pray? So the Apostle Paul has a thorn uh, in mm -hmm. his flesh, and he asks God to take it away. Mm -hmm. Now he submits to God when God says no, mm -hmm. but he knows which direction to pray. Right. Yeah. So I, I want, I want to be made whole. I don't want the right. thorn in my flesh. And if you say it's better for me to have the thorn in my flesh for the sake of my godliness, great. Right. Great. But he doesn't pray for two thorns in the flesh. Right. Yeah. We, we all know. So we, we're built. Um, we're built by God to move away from the pain and toward the, and, pleasure. And toward the pleasure. And is is this pain? And then we bring in the question of duty. And if, well, it's your duty to stay on the football team and endure the three days. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's what you need to do. Well, now I, I'm not saying now I'm going to embrace the pain. Now I'm embracing the pleasure of doing my duty, mm -hmm. right? And that's it's it's that kind of disciplined understanding of what makes human beings tick mm -hmm. that I think um, ties Lewis and, and Edwards and Piper together in a wonderful way. Are there any other um, any other lessons from Edwards? I mean, was there something just maybe for you personally as you were reading him that was the most edifying? Something that you read, or or maybe the most challenging that, you, that you, when you read it you thought that that I needed that. The most the most challenging, the most edifying, uh, would be the typology, the the reading through typology, and it's not this point or that one because I can have fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I can have fun with this point or that one. Yeah, but the the challenging thing is, oh, to know the Bible like that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I wish I wish that I would. I wish it just came out. It's like yeah. when you when you hear, you know. Read a Spurgeon sermon, and you just see the way that the the, illust the biblical illustrations and the biblical just kind of flows out of that. Yeah, that you just wish you didn't. So basically, um, I would love to be as scripturally steeped mm -hmm. as Edwards clearly was, and the typology book reveals it, reveals it like mm -hmm. nothing else. Mm -hmm. Good. And he didn't even have any computer software. Like <laughs> yeah, <that>. yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. He's doing it all just with his you know authorized version, and that's all. Right. Well, good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.